Welcome, everyone, to Two Guys to the Dark Tower Cave, a podcast where we discuss the characters and connections in the ever-expanding universe that revolves around Stephen King's Dark Tower. I'm Jay Russo. And I'm Sean McGurr. You can email us at twoguysdarktower at gmail.com. To support the show, visit us at patreon.com slash twoguysdarktower. In this episode, we'll cover Desperation, Part 4. The China Pit. God is cruel. Let's start the show. The ragtag remains of the Kali and Trajan Survival Society plan their next move. David Carver comes out of his vision and says they need to stay in desperation and defeat Tack. Johnny Marinville wants to bug out. But when he drops his wallet as he is leaving, David finds a way to convince him to stay. After a lot of action, the group gathers at the China Pit where Johnny sacrifices himself, destroying the pit, trapping Tack, and allowing David, Cynthia, Steve, and Mary to escape. Sounds like there were a good number of survivors in this story. Yeah, not too bad, right? Like like when you listed them out that way, I... I mean, there's still 30 pages to go. Who knows what will happen? That is a good point. We do not know what happens next. But there's plenty of death. Don't forget they killed the entire town of desperation along the way and... Yeah, but they're just nameless strangers. I don't really care about them. NPCs, they don't count. This is the fourth episode we've done on Desperation. And ever since the first episode, I've been saying, I I like where this book is going, but I know it's going to turn on me and I'm not going to like how it ends. Or I know know the next section is not going to be as good as the first. And I got to say, this book has been holding together for me. I have really enjoyed it. I think it's very well constructed. Very well written. I like all the action that's happening and it's working with a purpose. And I got to say, like, this is a good book. And somehow I doubt that the last 30 pages are going to change my mind. I think this is going to be, if not top tier king, it's going to be a solid, solid book for me. I would agree. I have enjoyed every step of the way uh, on this book. Even though I read this once many, many years ago, basically when it was first published, I'd largely forgotten most of the details. And with the unique way of how King has repurposed the same character names in two different books that I read back to back, it's fair to say that I really didn't know what was going to happen. I still don't really know how this story fully concludes. It does seem like we're at the conclusion of the plot, Yes, perhaps at this point, but I agree with you. I think that this was one of the best King books we've read in quite some time, and I really enjoyed it. I liked it a lot more than I expected to. I thought that this was going to be kind of uh, around the same caliber as the regulators and is way, way better. Yeah. It's pretty clear why he gave the regulators to Bachman and why he kept this one for himself. Yeah. And I've been kicking myself that we read these in the order that we did, Mm. because I think that we would have enjoyed regulators more if we had read Desperation first, because we would have known the character names better, and maybe that would have helped us to not feel so lost in this, the, the jumble of names that didn't seem to mean much in, in that book. But I'm glad we read it in the order we did because we went from a book that was eh to a book that was great. Yeah. And I think we would have been really, really disappointed by regulators if we'd read that second and compared it to this. Yeah. I'm very surprised at how much I've liked this. And I'm, I guess I'm also surprised that 
how little this book is talked about. Yeah. When you talk about King, like I never hear anyone mention this book at all as, oh, this is a book you've got to read or, or you need to go search out. I even joked with you that one could make an argument if you wanted to that maybe desperation is better than the stand. Oh, blasphemy, sir. <laughs> blasphemy. And and I, I say that a little facetiously, but the way that this is constructed, it is very to the point. I mean, the events of this takes place over what, 24 hours, similar to the regulators? Pretty much. Yeah. There seems to be a clear point from beginning to end of this fight between skepticism versus faith and maybe the real God versus these minor gods like Tack, the whole Johnny versus David conflict of of what to believe in works well all the setups throughout have have paid off from the beginning to 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 this point and there are these consistent twists right we have the twist of Kali fading away after we think he's going to be the big bad character for the entire novel and then the next twist is Audrey has turned out to be a minion of tack and then we get the twist in this section that it's Johnny Marinville, who is the person who has talked to David in the land of the dead and really gives David this sort of motivation for moving on. And I just think like all of these have been somewhat surprising to me and yet they kept me engaged and yeah, I I dig it. I'm joking. Like I've said, I said for like the first 25, 30 years of my life that the stand was my favorite book of all time. (laughs) I, I don't think it is anymore. I'm not even sure if it's my favorite King anymore, but this book Playing with the same themes, there's a lot of good stuff. I'd say that from a craftsmanship perspective, this book succeeds in its examinations of faith and the involvement of God in the plot in, in, more successfully than The Stand does. And it does it in far fewer pages. Even though this is not a short book, no, it's still a lot shorter than The Stand, but <laughs> so are most books. But The Stand has so much more going for it than just that theme, just that examination. And I think that's why it will remain in King's pantheon of of top-tier books. Because for this to displace it, you'd have to retract your initial statement. Like this isn't King's top-tier books, but in the, you know, the next year, it's it's pretty good. Right. This is a great book. It was a lot of fun to read. I really liked especially that that through line that King I think really nailed it with the skepticism versus faith, which is why I think we should talk about why God is cruel. Mm, yes. We've avoided talking about is God real or is God not real? What role does God play in this? But this is obviously a very religious book from King's perspective. Well, maybe I should take that back. This is obviously a very spiritual book. Yeah. For King. I, I would say it's probably not religious. None of the characters are are huge, like Bible-thumping, devout Christians. They're not the run-of-the-mill faithful type of character that we might encounter in another story. And we know from many instances, from the mist to the gunslinger, that King's view of organized religion is not positive. Mm -hmm. But in this case, David is a very sympathetic character, and he comes at it the back way, right? Like He doesn't know much about God, but God seems to have done something for him. And so David has devoted himself to God in his own way. But that doesn't involve going to church. It involves him talking to a pastor and reading the Bible on his own. One thing I should point out, there's a lot of 
Bible names here. So we've got John, we've got David, we've got Mary in this section. Mm-hmm. So getting aside from all that, this there does seem to be a spiritual force at work here. And one of the questions that we had asked, I think even in the first section was, why had Kali chosen these people to bring into town? And we get this hint that they're all arranged to be there for a reason. It's all part of some big plan. And a lot of these characters sort of say that, like David eventually says, God never makes us do what he wants us to do. He tells us that's all. Then he steps back to see how it turns out. So it's more of this idea of like the deists had with this clockmaker God, right? Like I put everything in motion Hmm. and then I just sit back and watch it. I'm not a a super involved God, but a, a one who lets you still have some free will. I'm just going to put you in positions to make decisions. Yeah. I can dig the whole all part of the plan thing that a godlike force arranged for these specific people to be in this specific place at this specific time so that they could overcome or destroy Tack or eliminate him or trap him again or whatever it saw as success. And if you kind of follow the paths backward from that point and see how all of their lives were affected and directed and things like that and think, wow, whatever this force is on them, it really goes back a long ways mm-hmm. and it has a lot of foresight and it has a lot of power. But maybe maybe it only really cared about Tack. Maybe only once Tack was freed from the mine and the town started to self-destruct, did this force take notice? And figured, okay, um, this author is on a cross-country trip, and this married couple is on a cross-country trip, and this family's on a cross-country trip. Let me do some stuff to get them all together. Yep. Because like, it makes me wonder, what is the nature of this God? Is it God? Like, A lot of these characters come from the perspective of a Judeo-Christian culture. So what they perceive as these godlike influences, they just automatically apply that lens. And so it's capital G God and it's the Christian God. And it's it's that God against this demon tech. But I think that you can make a pretty good argument that this can just be a more benevolent or maybe just less destructive entity. I don't know. Let's just say it's Maturin, the turtle. Right. And he's just kind of lumbering along through the universe, carrying the world on his back like he does. And he notices Tack is free of the mine. Well, now he's set some things into motion. And occasionally he talks to <laughs> he talks to David in the form of Johnny Marinville when he was a young man in Vietnam. That all tracks for me too. So it doesn't have to be. And King's not directly selling this as like it has to be the christian god like this isn't that wasn't jesus on the flying carpet ride no right it doesn't have to be no and i mean you started off saying like why is god cruel you know the subtitle of this section is god is cruel mm-hmm. and it's funny how the way that johnny talks about this because johnny makes the decision to sacrifice himself david thinks it's going to be him who does it yeah but then Johnny says, you're not having the visions anymore. No one's talking to you, but I know I need to do this because Johnny has had what he calls a God bomb go off. And he says to David, he says, do you know how cruel your God can be, David? How fantastically cruel? Sometimes he makes us live. And this is 
Johnny's saying, yeah, I'm going to sacrifice myself, mm-hmm. but you're going to have to live with the fact that you're an orphan now. You lost your parents, you lost your sister, and you're going to have to live. And on the one hand, this is very poignant. It's very sympathetic. And Johnny's trying to say, you know, this is this is going to be cruel, David. You know, you've lost three people close to you and you're going to have to live. But on the other hand, this is also a God who's left, what, 200 people in desperation die? Uh-huh. Somebody else's, what, you know, husband, uh, uh, these other people, like, there's literally been dozens and dozens of people who've been killed in, in horrible, horrible ways. But like, okay, let's just focus on the fact that I'm going to sacrifice myself for you. Like, this God is terribly cruel. It's not just that he's letting David live, but in order to have this moment when Johnny can sacrifice himself, like 200 people had to die up until then. And so, mm-hmm. you know, we have this plan in motion, but like, hey, God, couldn't you have put that plan in motion maybe a week earlier before Tack got into Kali and Trajan? And- yeah, using people who already lived in desperation. And it's funny too, because David also is a way of justifying things because he, he says like, we've got to do this. And if not, we're going to pay the price. And somebody says like, well, David, like, the mining company is not just going to stop their work. We we could do all this, but then, you know, two weeks later, the mining company is going to come back in and dig and what's going to stop them from releasing tech again. And David just sort of like wipes his hands of it. He's like, ah, that's not our problem. God just gave us a plan to do what we're supposed to do. And then he'll figure out something else. It's like, man, this God is very either not a good planner or very, very cruel, much more cruel than we think. Or it's not clear to David, but God's plan now is pretty much permanent like like his fix is tack is gone now he's not just trapped in a hole in the ground he's never coming back because of johnny's sacrifice could be yes yeah we don't know i mean that's the other thing i like about this book is that it's very self-contained it's almost like the raft in that way right like we talked about like we don't know where this creature came from that's in the raft and we don't know what's going to happen now that like we're very focused on these four characters and that's the way this book is right like we have some mm-hmm. idea where tack came from but it sort of doesn't matter like all you need to know is like there's this thing that might be some way demi god like and it's in the it's in the ground we don't know where it came from or where it's going but all we need to know is let's focus on these characters and the story ultimately becomes a you know this david johnny skepticism versus faith issue by the way, listeners, if you want to hear our full conversation about The Raft and the adaptation for Creepshow, check out patreon.com slash twoguysdarktower. Smooth. Very smooth, Jay. It all works out according to a plan. It might not be David's plan, and it might not be Johnny's plan originally, but it works out to some other entity's plan. But what is interesting about that in my opinion is that this makes another strong a strong piece for god is unknowable right as much as david thinks he knows and can talk to god there's still things that are beyond his ken and understanding um and same with johnny and and that's another piece that i think is important to understand that really if there is a god we're so beneath any understanding of that that we don't understand his plan so if 200 people in desperation have to die that's fine because who knows what would have happened otherwise. Right, right. Yeah. And so, you know, like I said earlier, I think he does a good job with this king here. And um, it might be a stronger argument because at least when Johnny makes his stand here, he is an active participant in it. These characters have to go up to the China pit. These characters have to get the explosives. Johnny has to go into the hole, even when he's injured and, you know, his 
flesh is all torn off, he has to make the decision to use the shotgun shell that he has to have as part of the plan to set things off. And in that sense, I think it worked better than the stand in which it's sort of like, uh, there's people just standing around and this random hand of God comes out. Mm -hmm. So that's one of the reasons I think this is also stronger than the stand. But it also made me think like, what other connections are there that are similar or not similar? And there seem to be a lot in this book to other King works. And so we're going to go through some other connections like that. Yeah. Uh, you just mentioned the the one about the the stand. I saw a reference in the death room where King wrote a story about a reporter who is captured for a short while by Central American military mm -hmm. corrupt government officials. And he's tortured for a bit and manages to turn the tables on them, let's say. And he's there because his sister was a nun. So when there's a reference here about what the Jesus Scouts did was get people killed, look at John the Baptist or those nuns in South America. It mm. made me think directly about in the death room. Very nice. There is another regulator's connection in this section of the book where Mary thinks of the pints of strawberries that she and her friends had picked at Mohonk Mountain House the previous summer. Oh, interesting. Yeah. I did not make that connection. That's a good one. And then there's a line, Ripton excels and excels, going out and out and out, feeling it happen, feeling it transfer. This is when Tack is changing bodies. Mm. And that giant exhale and this like substance coming out of one mouth and going into another reminded me of John Coffey in The Green Mile. Now, in that story, that was a like a force of good. John Coffey was healing the people who he was doing this to. Right. Although there is one time when he kind of transfers the the sickness to another person, but spoiler, sorry. <laughs> uh, I'll just I'll just leave it at that unspecified uh moment, but the, that reminded me of the Green Mile, so connection there. Nice. I guess if you count the title for the most part, there's a connection to King's short story, Strawberry Spring, which was collected in Night Shift, from the line, he was cut in what felt like a billion places, and already he could feel the grayness of blood loss crowding in on his mind. It made him think of Connecticut again, and the way the fogs came in after dark during the last weeks of March and the first weeks of April. The old timers called it Strawberry Spring. God knew why. Mm. And I didn't have a chance to lay my hands on a copy of Strawberry Spring before this, but I'm pretty sure there's a God knew why line in that as well. This sounds so familiar. Interesting. Because King talks about how the old timers call it that and no one knows why. Very cool. Yeah, lots of good connections that you have found here. The real question though is those are those are slight connections, right? Or ones that you know, we could find, but are there any dark tower thinnies? I think there were. I think there were a few. I think there's quite a few in this section and a lot in this book in general, right? Like this book has been filled with them. Yeah. You want to kick us off? Yeah. So I mentioned before that we're not exactly sure where tech came from or, or what tech is, but it's pretty clear that wherever tech has come from is probably due to a thinny, right? I think even David says like, he's probably come from some other dimension or some other place and, and and now he's gotten here and not only is that 
similar to actual Todash space thinny that he could have come out, that Tack could have come out, but but also this Lovecraftian influence, right? Like Cthulhu mythos, which we know influenced King. Mm-hmm. We get this quote, Tack is the ancient one, the unformed heart, and the place where it really is on the other side of the throat at the bottom of the well. I'm not sure that place is on earth at all, or even in normal space. Tack is a complete outsider, so different from us that we can't even get our minds around him. Yeah, that's Lovecraft all the way there. Yep, absolutely. And not only is Tack a complete outsider, so different that we can't get our minds around him, but to some extent, the god that David thinks he is serving is that way as well. I agree. Like the the tentacle-like protrusions that Tack is able to to fit through the tiny orifice. Yep. And that's Cthulhu stuff. That's Thinny stuff. The Thinny in Wizard and Glass had like this tentacle effect too, right? Where like when Roland and his Katet use it as a trap, when the people who were pursuing them got too close, they they got like grabbed and drawn into it. Yep. And they were killed by this devastating creature. So maybe that was like Tech's cousin. I don't know. Or maybe it was Cthulhu's cousin. But it seems like these thinnies can can connect you to any place and sometimes they connect to Todash space and who knows what you'll find there. Yeah, that is a Dark Tower thinny for sure. I wanted to call out the use of the term gunny sack. There's a line where Carrie Ripton is use, is going around killing everybody. I think he's the first person who tack controls. Yep. And he uses the term gunny sack in his thoughts. So maybe that's just something that Carrie Ripton knew or used, or maybe it's something from Tack's mind, the gunny sack. But gunny sack is also what Roland called his shoulder bag. Mm-hmm. And he's he uses the gunny sack to collect the Kanta. And both of those terms are, so Gunny Sack and Kanta are Dark Tower terms. So it's like a double thinny right there. Yeah, there you go. We've mentioned the Kalian Trajan Survival Society. And, you know, they finally get back together at the beginning of this section. And we get this quote, then they were together once more. All those who remained joined again in spite of its efforts. And then later on, we're told that because the six of them together were something special, maybe. If so, it was David who had made them special. So it seems as if they formed at least a loose quartet here, if not an actual one. And I would say so. And with David being the one who brought them together, maybe he is has some aspects of a gunslinger if he's sort of the lead, the leader of the quartet. Uh, that might be a little bit of a stretch, but definitely a quartet feeling here. Yeah, I saw David as a twinner to Jake and less a twinner to Roland. I think that Johnny Marinville was supposed to be Roland, a, a washed up, worn out, you know, maybe too many extra miles on the odometer Roland. But when it came time to stand up and do the right thing, I think Johnny Marinville did what he did what Roland would have done in that situation. But as far as David goes, yeah, I think he did draw everybody together into a quartet. I'm with you on that for sure. So there's a line. And then instead of looking out of Ripton's eyes, it is looking out of Josephson's eyes. And this is when Tack has just jumped from one body to the next. And I thought that that description sounded a lot like Roland's experience with the doors on the beach. Yeah. 
especially in that first one when he jumps in Eddie's eyes and there's that disconcerting like, wait, what's happening to me? And Eddie's a little freaked out and Roland's freaked out and he looks at himself in the mirror and he's like, whoa, realizing what happens. That sense of dissociation is good. Yeah, yeah, it's pretty good. I would have never have noticed this, except you tend to be the one to point these things out, Jay. There's this line right at the end when Johnny has set off the shotgun shell. He had one fraction of a moment to wonder if he had succeeded. And then the question was answered in a bloom of brilliant, soundless red. It was like swooning into a rose. Oh. And you've taught me to always point out the rose when it comes up as a as a Dark Tower Thinian. As soon as I saw that, I was like, oh, wow. Yeah. That's a good one. I'll allow it. The last one yours, right? It is. And you mentioned before how David is almost a twin of Jake. And I think this is Johnny who says at one point he has a sense of doubling, of twinning that was even stronger now. And he understood with both dismay and resignation that it was a true sensation. He's sort of in a haze at the end of this section, right? After the God bomb has gone off in his mind, like Johnny realizes, I've got to do something. And there's that that sense of dissociation that I mentioned before. And hmm. You get the sense that Johnny doesn't want to do the right thing, but he has to do the right thing. And he knows he's going to do the right thing. And he sort of can't believe it. Yeah. You know, your mention of the God bomb made me think of another sort of interpretive thingy. I see this God bomb experience as something akin to what happens to Roland when he is absorbed by the pink grapefruit and shown his vision of the tower and his vision of his quest. Mm. And that puts him on the road to the dark tower and puts him front and center in his unstoppable mission and obsession. It's that moment. I think the force that is acting upon him is a different one, but it is a great force nonetheless. And it's, it's kind of like, I like King's term of, uh, here for it is the God bomb. And I think Roland was hit by a, you know, wizard's rainbow bomb. <laughs> yes. And he was never the same after that. Right. All right. Well, it's time for yucking it up. I'll go first. There's a line from when Mary was escaping and uh, she manages to fall into a pile of dead bodies. And the line is, she landed on things that shifted and belched dead breath. <laughs> and, uh, it's pretty gross falling, falling into a pile of dead bodies. But the belching dead breath also reminded me of Franny's dad in the stand. Mm-hmm. That was one thing that they uh, kept and brought to life in the miniseries, if I remember correctly. Uh-huh. One thing that miniseries did, right? One thing. Mine is when Tack gets into Carrie Ripton's body. And I think, if I remember right, Carrie Ripton has undiagnosed cancer of some sort. Mm-hmm. He's, he's never gone to a doctor. And it's in bad shape and Tack needs to get out of it. And we were told Carrie Ripton's body is bleeding so badly, he's had to stuff his underwear full of toilet paper to absorb it. And twice on the way out to the mine, he has had to stop and yark a gut full of blood out the window of Carrie's pickup truck. It splashed all down the side. In the first tentative and somehow sinister light of the coming day, the drying blood looks like tobacco juice. You know, King is just so damn good. <laughs> In the first tentative and somehow sinister light of the coming day, that's that's beautiful. Sandwiched right between gouts of blood and puke and <laughs> tobacco juice, like it's all there. Yeah, we're gonna watch 
desperation for a bonus episode. And I'm interested to see how much of these different times that these bodies are falling apart or losing skin or growing, how much of this they're going to show knowing that it's a a made for TV movie. Mm. But this, this could get pretty gross pretty quick. Yeah. It's got a lot of potential for just (laughs) buckets of blood. Yes. We'll see what happens. Well, uh, Jay already mentioned it once, but you can support the show and get access to exclusive Patreon content, such as bonus podcast episodes, as the aforementioned The Raft bonus episode, and the soon-to-becoming Desperation movie adaptation bonus episode, by becoming a patron. Visit patreon.com slash twoguysdarktower to learn more. We recently got this very nice review on Twitter from Mikasa A., And Mikasa said, just finished The Dark Tower after 15 years of starting and stopping. And then Mikasa goes on to say, I'm so happy I found your podcast. You guys are the best. Thank you, Mikasa. We we are, in fact, the best. And to prove that we are the best, Jay, I'm going to read you a recent review we got on iTunes from CheedT76, who said, thank you for the great work that is this podcast. I've been a fan for a long time but I started listening again after a long hiatus not too long ago, and I'm just finishing your trip through Dark Tower, Wind Through the Keyhole. I've read the series multiple times through the years. I was there during the drought that was the wait for book four, and selfishly worried that when he was in that accident, he might never finish. And I am also one of the privileged few to understand the first book as the best of the series, much like my co-host. Yes. <laughs> the reviewer goes on to continue. I love seeing you guys go through the books and your reaction to the things that happen as they happen. I can't wait for your reactions to five, six, and seven. Well, thank you very much. Uh, you should, uh, you know, hopefully you've probably continued your way through and heard our reactions to five, six, and seven. You go on to say, thanks for the podcast and keep up the great work. We're doing our best now that we're past the dark tower. We're picking up books as they come. And I think there's still a lot of good stuff to mine of King. And hopefully you're enjoying it. Yes. Thank you for the great review. All right. We're at the time of the show for fun. (laughs) (laughs) Sean, I think what you're trying to say is it's time for fun stuff. It is time for fun stuff, Jay. Thank you for saying that. One of the things I wanted to to call out here in fun stuff is that Johnny Marinville is obsessed with Jolt Cola, Mm -hmm. which was a blast from the past for me. I hadn't heard anybody mention or certainly haven't had a, a sip of Jolt Cola in quite some time. But what really caught my attention was that the Jolt Cola that he drinks is in bottles. And I thought that that was very fancy for Mr. <laughs> Marinville. As far as I know, Jolt Cola pretty much just came in cans, but I could be wrong. I never sought out the, the fancy schmancy style of Jolt. Not in glass bottles, that's for sure. Maybe in like two liters, but I don't even remember that so well. Yeah, but it seemed like they were small, like like 12 ounce bottles. Oh yeah, a two liter jolt would send you to the moon, wouldn't it? Uh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I think Tack would have like killed everybody in the story if they, were, they all had a, oh, two liters of jolt. There's this uh, passage, car keys, but bottle knives and nail clippers and maybe aspirin tins. Everything people keep in their pockets is hyphenated, he thought. How fascinating. Ticket stubs, money clips, change purses. Jay, there's one, two, three, four, five, six, seven phrases hyphenated in that little passage. And none of those should be hyphenated. There's not a single (laughs) one of those that I would hyphenate at all. 
Not car keys, not pocket knives, not nail clippers, aspirin tins, ticket stubs, money clips, change purses. None of those should be hyphenated. And that sort of drove me crazy. And so I came up with this whole theory in my head that King had recently changed publishers and maybe his new publishers had this new style guide in which all these phrases are incorrectly hyphenated. And King wanted to make a point of saying, you're wrong. And so he made a passage in there where he said, <laughs> how odd that all these things are hyphenated when in fact they shouldn't be. So so this is just King getting like subtle revenge on the style guide? I, I can't imagine why on earth this passage is in here and why these words, like the only one I can maybe make a case for is pocket knives. I've never seen car keys hyphenated ever in my life. I was kind of flummoxed by the fact that these are the thoughts of a writer specifically about how to write words. So like Johnny Marinville should know better. And then the writer of the book writing the thoughts of the character King, he should know better, but maybe he's doing something for effect here. But then maybe the editor of King's book should have like fixed this and said, Hey, uh, Steve, don't you think maybe we should change this sentence because of the let me just say that this isn't fun stuff because it annoyed me. And now that I'm reading it again after <laughs> typing it in my notes a week ago, it's annoying me again. I've had a jolly good time just out of the fact that you wrote in all caps, none of these should be hyphenated. It's true. It's true. <laughs> well, onto a, onto a more one that doesn't get me quite as upset. Somebody says, this was dumb, like betting on the Tampa Bay Bucks to win the Super Bowl. And I don't know, it was six years after this book came out that the Tampa Bay Buccaneers won a Super Bowl and they are currently the Super Bowl champions having just won it this past February. So um is is that a football team? That is indeed a football team. The Super Bowl is a game that they play at the end to determine who's the champion. Ah, uh, got it. Yeah, when I read that line, I didn't know whether this was supposed to be like a sarcastic thing or or that's a sure thing like the Tampa Bay Bucks win the Super Bowl practically every time. Yeah, no, it's supposed to be they were the team that never wins a Super Bowl, but in fact, this book was immediately dated or dated shortly soon after, and just sort of ironic they were reading it now when they're champions. They already tripped over that problem with the Jolt Cola. So Yes. <laughs> yeah, sometimes King's books are a time capsule of sorts. Mm -hmm. Sean, I think the last fun stuff is is all yours. When David is reciting the story behind what happened with Tack and the backstory, Johnny is still in his skeptical mode and says, oh, so we're really talking miniseries here. Night one is the Lucian brothers. Night two is Josephson, the Footloose receptionist. They'll love it at ABC. And ironically, this actually became a miniseries at ABC, May 23rd, 2006. <laughs> I, I think King sort of knew that. He had a relationship with ABC for a while where they were doing miniseries of his books and and screenplays. So. Um, it wasn't out of the realm of possibility that he could put this in there knowing that, hey, maybe it will actually become a, a TV movie. Yeah, it would have been really awkward if it had become a mini series or a movie adaptation on NBC. Yeah, right? or CBS. Yeah. All right. Well, that's going to take us to the end. I am looking forward to the last 30 pages of this book and we'll see how it wraps up. But before we end the show, let's talk about some other worlds than these. <laughs> Jay, what else have you been getting into in the pop culture world? I recently had an opportunity to see the latest James Bond movie, No Time to Die. Ooh, I saw it too. I 
quite enjoyed it. It was a long movie. Probably could have been a little shorter. That's my main criticism. But I really liked it. I have enjoyed all of the Daniel Craig Bond movies. I think my favorite one is the first one. Yep. Casino Royale. I think that might be the best Bond movie of all the Bonds. That could be a controversial statement, but it's my favorite one. Not in this corner. I think that's a that is a a pretty correct statement. It's definitely top three. Uh, I liked how the the filmmakers made various they made attempts to various degrees of success to link all five of these movies together, and this final movie ties a nice bow on that effort. It's a very good entry into the Bond pantheon. Lots of touches and and homages to previous Bonds, previous Bond movies, previous Bond characters, and uh, it's a lot of fun. So I recommend it. If you haven't seen it yet, go out and uh, go out and see it. Yeah, I I will second everything you said there, Jay. Um, very good. All right, my uh, other worlds in these is the Sandman audio drama that you can get from Audible.com. This is a full cast adaptation of Neil Gaiman's Sandman comic series. The second part of it came out just a few weeks ago, a few months ago by the time you hear this. I will say that this might not be for everyone. In fact, there might be somebody who I'm talking to right now who it might not be for, but who gave it a try, so I appreciate that. If you're familiar with the comics, though, I think that will ease your way into this. And even if you're not familiar with the comics, there's a couple of really good episodes. Even though it's part one and part two, they're basically... 25 minute episodes and there's like 10 in a in a package and some of the standalone ones are just some of the best storytelling that that you're going to get and some really interesting stuff and it was after having just read the comics for you know i've read them i think three times over the past couple decades it was nice to get a different perspective sandman i believe is coming to netflix in 2022 so it'll be interesting to see an actual live action version. This is something that's people have been trying to get off the ground for years and um, haven't gotten there yet. And maybe the audio drama will be that nice in between for, for those of you who haven't tried it out yet. Yeah, I am that person who uh, gave it a chance and it didn't work for me. I am not for, at all familiar with the story. I didn't read the comic. I have uh, no general familiarity with the, the Gaiman's work on, on it at all. So I think that uh, I really struggled with the format. It's an it's an adaptation, just like a movie or a TV show yep. would be. So some of their choices were things that um, I kind of felt like got in the way of enjoying or really catching or getting into the story. The performances were good and the production value is really high. So if you are willing to give it a chance like me, maybe you'll love it. Yep. Yeah. And I know a lot of people don't know about it. So if you've got a chance, get it on Audible. I, my wife had free credit, so I got it for free. Well, I guess they're not free credits, but one she had in use, so I, I, I got them. All right. Well, that's all for this episode of Two Guys to the Dark Tower Came. Thanks, Jay. Thank you. Links to all of our social media are available in the show notes. If you like the show, please rate us on Apple Podcasts. To support the show, visit patreon.com slash Tower. Next episode, join us as we finish our discussion of desperation with part five, Highway 50 excused early. For Jay Russo, I'm Sean McGurr. Thanks for listening. I wouldn't say we're excused that early. It's a 700-page book. But the...
This was supposed to be for Billy's fifth birthday. I took the liberty of making it a sexy cake. All right, we're at the time of the show for fun. <laughs> you made a face at it. You, you made a face at it threw me off.